Welcome to this podcast on Hepatitis B in general practice. My name is Karen Shaw. I am a GP and S100 prescriber in Sydney. We're very lucky to have joining us on this podcast today, Associate Professor Simone Strasser, Senior Staff Specialist in Hepatology at RPA Hospital in Sydney. I'd like to start by acknowledging the traditional owners of the various Aboriginal lands on which our podcast is being recorded today. I'd like to pay my respects to Elders past, present and emerging. In 2020, New South Wales was estimated to have the second highest prevalence of hepatitis B and the highest burden of chronic hepatitis B attributable deaths in Australia. Most people were chronic hepatitis with chronic hepatitis B were born in high prevalence countries and now reside in New South Wales. People born in China and Vietnam represent more than one third of people living with chronic hepatitis B in New South Wales. Aboriginal people are also disproportionately affected by hepatitis B. To effectively engage with communities most affected by hepatitis B, it is important that healthcare providers partner with organisations that support, engage and provide services to these populations. Therefore, today's podcast discussion will focus on the role of GPs in prevention, testing and monitoring hepatitis B and identifying at-risk patients for hepatitis B vaccination and testing. We'll also hear about the experiences and challenges of GPs regarding hepatitis B testing, monitoring and management. Welcome, Simone, and thank you for taking the time to speak with us today. Hi, Karen. It's such a pleasure to be here. That's great. Um, So, Simone, just to establish some context here, why is hepatitis B such a significant health priority and why is there such a need to address it? Well, I think you actually already referred to this, Karen. We have such a burden of chronic hepatitis B in New South Wales and in other areas of Australia, of course. And that burden is largely in people who have come from countries where hepatitis B is very prevalent and they got it at birth before there was universal neonatal vaccination. Now, this is going to be much less of a problem in the future because most of the countries in the region now do have universal and pretty high level neonatal vaccination. But we still have this burden from people who were infected around the time of birth or at birth many years ago. So we have this burden in people from the ages of 30, 40, 50 and up who are living with chronic hepatitis B, and we know that only about 60% of them are actually diagnosed. Mm. So you're saying that there is quite a huge proportion of these patients in our communities. Yeah. Um, and, and, and what do you think are these sort of the common misconceptions about hep B that you have come across? Well, what we sometimes see is that people should have symptoms related to their hepatitis B and therefore... They might have abnormal liver tests or they might have symptoms and that will actually prompt testing. Whereas actually many people living with hepatitis B are asymptomatic. They may not have even had a blood test or if they have a blood test, their liver function tests, for instance, are either very mildly abnormal or completely normal. So there are really no clues for many people living with hepatitis B that they have it. And that means that we have to test people at risk. Currently, the only times when we actually do routine testing is in antenatal testing. So we do pick up people in antenatal testing. So they're obviously younger women, many of whom might have come from countries, again, of high prevalence of hepatitis B, and their infection predated introduction of vaccination in those countries. And that 
when we find somebody in an antenatal screen, that's then a window into their whole family and their older generations in that family are quite likely to have hepatitis B as well and maybe undiagnosed. Mm. So you're saying it's quite a silent disease and we really have to be actively looking for these cases. Absolutely. And that means that every person who's migrated to Australia from high prevalence countries, whether it's in North Asia, Southeast Asia, Sub-Saharan Africa, Eastern Europe, the Pacific Islands, New Zealand, these are all countries of high prevalence of hepatitis B. And that means that for every single person coming from those countries, they have the right to know their hepatitis B status. And they only have to be tested once to know that because their risk for infection was at birth. So that means all those people who come from those countries must have on their medical record their hepatitis B status. And that's not happening at the moment. And so the sad aspect of that is me working in a major teaching hospital, we still see people coming from Tonga, from Vietnam, from China, from Korea, etc., who arrive in our emergency department or referred in with new onset abdominal pain and they're found to have a large liver cancer. And that scenario was completely preventable if we had known their hepatitis B status, assessed them for whether they needed to be under antiviral treatment or not, and had them under surveillance for liver cancer to diagnose an early curable cancer. Wow. Okay. So it's actually quite a lot of people that could potentially have hepatitis B and lots of um, preventable adverse outcomes. Correct. So we know that about only that there's about 40% of people in New South Wales living with hepatitis B that don't know their diagnosis. And a lot of the other 60% may have been diagnosed as hepatitis B, but are not under routine care. So one of the misnomers in this whole space is that there's such a thing as a healthy carrier. And we still hear this from GPs and from patients that they've been told that they're just a healthy carrier. They've been diagnosed with hep B it's not causing them problems. Well, in fact, there's a risk of that hepatitis B in everybody living with it, then it can progress to cirrhosis and to liver cancer and to cause early death. And we now regard that the fact that there's no such thing as a healthy carrier. Everyone can reactivate their virus and become active and progress to fibrosis and liver cancer. And that means everybody with a diagnosis of being hepatitis B surface antigen positive must be under regular care. They should be having at least annual monitoring, if not more, if they're more active. And uh, nobody should be just delegated as being a healthy carrier and dropped out of follow-up. Mm, I absolutely agree with that. Um, I think you've touched on a lot of those groups who are at risk of hepatitis B, but I'm wondering, just to summarise here, are there any other groups we should be uh, thinking about testing? So who else is at risk of hepatitis B? So I've already mentioned migrants to Australia, but in our Indigenous Australians are also at risk, and there's high rates of hepatitis B, particularly in remote Indigenous communities in North Queensland, in Northern Territory and other, other remote Aboriginal communities, including in, in New South Wales communities as well. So people who are Indigenous also should be tested and should know their hepatitis B status. And again, it's a one-off test because the risk is in early childhood. And that's because somebody infected in early childhood has a 95% chance of becoming chronically infected. So once we know that they've not got hepatitis B, we can determine if they're susceptible and we can vaccinate or we can um, obviously provide care if they are hepatitis B positive. Other groups, it's a bloodborne virus. So anyone who has bloodborne risk factors such as injecting drug use, 
such as sex workers, such as uh, men who have sex with men, they are all at risk of hepatitis B. All should be vaccinated, clearly, because that will prevent infection. And if they've not been vaccinated, they should be, or they should be screened for hepatitis B in the first instance. That's perfect. Um, and, and how is hepatitis B transmitted? You've mentioned vertical transmission from birth, from mother to baby. What other modes are there? So certainly mother to baby transmission accounts for most of the global burden of hepatitis B, but it is a blood-borne virus and it's spread through other fluids. So it's spread sexually, as I alluded to. It's spread through blood-to-blood contact. Uh, it's not spread through food, through kissing, through gentle, you know, normal normal contact. So one of the other misnomers, and and you asked about other misnomers in this area, and this is a tragic one that I I see not infrequently, is that it can be spread from, for instance, grandma who has hepatitis B, you know, that she might spread it to the grandchildren. And I've heard horrible stories where when the, you know, elderly Korean, Chinese, Vietnamese grandparent has been diagnosed with hepatitis B, the the daughter-in-law or the son, the son-in-law, etc., has forbade the mother-in-law having contact with the children. Now, that's clearly horrible, um, but it's also not appropriate. The children are all vaccinated. You can't spread hepatitis B through casual household contact. It would have to be a blood-borne risk factor and only to somebody who's not vaccinated. So there is never a reason for discriminating against people from hepatitis with hepatitis B in that way. That's perfect. Um, So, I mean, uh, you've talked about vaccination. So we know that immunisation is the most effective primary prevention strategy. It's cost effective against chronic hep B. Um, So who else uh, would be getting vaccinated for hep B apart from the ones who walk in our practice who we're identifying opportunistically? So the biggest strategy that's going to have the most impact globally is neonatal, uh, sorry, newborn vaccination. Uh, so that means, and this has been introduced in most countries, including Australia, that all babies are vaccinated through a routine vaccination schedule. There's a birth dose vaccination, and then there's three more vaccinations in most countries. It varies a little bit. And that will protect those children lifelong from getting hepatitis B. Anyone who's missed those early vaccinations or hasn't been vaccinated at all should have a, a catch-up vaccination, particularly if they're in at-risk groups. But personally, I think everybody would benefit from, from being vaccinated. It's not on the national immunisation schedule, so they would have to pay for it in those settings, unless they've got significant risk factors, in which case you can get hepatitis B vaccination for free, for instance, through sexual health clinics. So people who might be at risk through sexual practice, injecting drug use practice, etc., should should be vaccinated they can get it for free from sexual health clinics otherwise they can pay for it and in the general population healthcare workers childcare workers people working in other institutions clearly should be vaccinated as well and it's mandated as you know for many professions um, as people go through their studies at university they've got to show proof of hepatitis b vaccination so we're actually getting very broad coverage now through the community Uh, We still see people slipping through who haven't been vaccinated, who have serious consequences of adult-acquired hepatitis B, 
And from time to time, again, I work in a transplant unit, we see somebody in middle age presenting with acute hepatitis B, where they've had an exposure, for instance, a new sexual partner who had hepatitis B, they didn't know that, they weren't vaccinated, they acquired new hepatitis B that led to acute liver failure, which is not very common, but can occur. So that's obviously a disaster as well, because that person needs a transplant for to be life-saving. And therefore, we have clear groups that need vaccination, clear professions that should be vaccinated, clear at-risk people, but anybody can access vaccination that will protect them against hepatitis B in the future. I think to add to that, Simone, there are also um, uh, New South Wales Health sponsors vaccination for people at those in those at-risk groups. I mean, you mentioned some of them, but even GP practices can apply for some of these vaccines uh, that are government funded and are available free. So some of those groups can include um, household contacts and people who are immunocompromised. And there's a, a good website um, that hepatitis B um, org. Um, dot au that one there's a link to that new south wales health page that shows you the groups who are eligible for government funded vaccinations so maybe we could put this up in the show notes for the participants after as well i think that's really important and, and one of the area the the area that you just mentioned that i didn't mention was if we find uh, particularly a family uh, born overseas where we find an index case exact of hepatitis B, everybody in that family should probably be screened for hepatitis B first before vaccination because they may already have hepatitis B if they were also born in that country or they're you know, the, the children of a woman who has had hepatitis B at the time that she was pregnant, for instance, they should all be screened for hepatitis B, I think, before vaccination, because one of the reasons for vaccine failure is the person already has hepatitis B. And that person then needs to be assessed in their own right and, and put into appropriate care pathways. That's such an important point you raise. Um, so we should definitely be testing people with serology before we vaccinate as well. Um, and that brings us to testing for hep B. Um, that can seem really complex. And I think as GPs, we may not have a good understanding of it. Could you please explain more to us about testing and the different types of tests that we should be ordering? I think it's actually really easy. <laughs> so for, if you're testing for hepatitis B, there's several reasons why you're doing that testing. One is to know whether that person has chronic hepatitis B. And the other is to know whether they're susceptible and therefore should be vaccinated. And the other is whether they've had prior exposure to hepatitis B, in which case they don't need vaccination. So you only need three tests in that situation. You need a hepatitis B surface antigen, you need a hepatitis B core antibody, and you need a hepatitis B surface antibody. So everybody who's tested should have all three tests. This is particularly important when we're testing people in the setting of, for instance, immunosuppression or cancer chemotherapy, which we haven't discussed yet, but you need to know the results of all of those three tests, but you do in any situation. So the reasons for that is because if we find somebody has hepatitis B surface antigen in the context of screening, that means that person has chronic hepatitis B. It's unlikely to be acute hepatitis B in that setting because that would be a situation where you're testing someone because they've clearly got acute hepatitis, they've got transaminases in the thousands it's, and they're symptomatic, for instance. We're just doing it in the setting of screening. That means if we find hepatitis B surface antigen positive, they've got chronic hepatitis B. If we find the surface antigen is negative but their core antibody positive, that means they've had actual exposure to hepatitis B in the past 
and they now have resolved hepatitis B infection. I don't mention they've got cure because we know that in that situation, there is still small levels of virus in the liver in that person. They're not cured of infection. They've just resolved it. They're not showing any outward manifestations, but it can reactivate in a few settings. One area they can reactivate is under intense immunosuppression, such as with rituximab or anti-B cell active therapies or after stem cell trans, uh, transplant. They can also reactivate if we use their liver, for instance, in liver transplantation and put it into a recipient, the hepatitis B will become active again. So we know there's active virus there, but just at a very small level, not causing problems. The other testing scenario we can find is that surface antigens negative, core antibodies negative, but surface antibodies positive, and that's what we see in somebody who's been vaccinated and they don't need vaccination again, because of, particularly if that level's over 10. If it's less than 10, they might want to have a booster vaccination if they're at risk. But it's very clear that's all you need to know to find out whether someone has hepatitis B, they've had hepatitis B in the past, or they're susceptible to hepatitis B and need vaccination because they've got no markers that are positive. Once we find somebody with chronic hepatitis B, that's when we do the other tests that people know about. Then we do a hepatitis B E antigen, hepatitis B E antibody, an HBV DNA level and check their liver function test. And that's going to help us work out whether that person has active hepatitis B that may need treatment. Uh, and so uh, I was just wondering, like, are all these tests covered by Medicare? Yep, Medicare will cover if you just do surface antigen, core antibody and a surface antibody, that's all covered by Medicare and it's recommended in the hepatitis B guidelines. And again, one of the links we'll put in the show notes is the recent hepatitis B consensus guidelines. The short version was published in the Medical Journal of Australia. The longer version is available through the Gastro Society of Australia website. Uh, and that has strong recommendations for testing with all three. They're all covered by Medicare. So are you saying it's not sufficient for me to write on the form hepatitis B serology? I wouldn't because the labs will interpret that in different ways. And sometimes the lab will just do a surface antigen. Sometimes they'll do a surface antibody. Rarely will they do all three. So I think GPs really should be in the habit of writing exactly what they want to have the results of, which is a surface antigen, surface antibody and core antibody. That's great. You've really simplified things for me there. Um, and uh, I think there's also a resource that I can access as well if I was to trying to just refer back to some kind of a tool for this. Um, um, there is also that action decision-making Hep B tool, I think, um, which we'll put in the show notes for our participants. Well. And that tool is really, really helpful. It's got the graph on it. We call it the squiggliogram, um, which shows the phases of hepatitis B. So we apply that once we find somebody has hepatitis B surface antigen, determine they've got chronic hepatitis B. We then do their E antigen, their E antibody, their HBV DNA and their ALT. And that's all the information you need to then go back to that squiggliogram that everybody is probably aware of. It, it puts hepatitis B into four phases to tell us whether they've got active infection that might be targeted for treatment or whether they're in immune control and they just need to be in surveillance. And we, I don't think we need to go into the absolute details of all that at the moment, but what the GP needs to determine is, firstly, does this person have hepatitis B? What phase of infection are they, are? Are they in? Do they need referral 
to a specialist or involve a Section 100 prescribing GP if they're not actually personally experienced in the management of hepatitis B and whether that treatment need, that and whether that person needs to be in regular care and potentially antiviral treatment and lastly whether they need to be in HCC surveillance with six monthly ultrasound and AFP testing. That's a great summary, Simone. Um, so I guess in terms of resources for if we find someone who's hep B surface antigen positive, um, there would be this ASHAM tool. And then um, is there any other ways of reaching out to gastroenterologists as well um, or hepatologists? Um, so say, for instance, we weren't uh, ready to do a referral but we wanted to see how else we could manage and get advice maybe within a week, um, get some feedback. Um, is there a tool or form that we can access? Uh, through any of the ASHAM-trained S100 prescribing GPs have a linking specialist, so they know how to contact their linking specialists. But many of the specialists at the, at the hospitals are happy to take calls. I'm always happy to have an email or a call, for instance, for New South Wales patients. I get calls from all over Australia, but I'm particularly happy in New South Wales to take a call if a GP is just not sure what to do with a patient and, and we can discuss it. Happy to respond to an email as well. And, and many of my colleagues would do exactly the same. So if you're not sure, reach out to somebody with more experience. The other resource that we have in many of our clinics are our clinical nurse consultants. And some of us have nurse practitioners as well who are very experienced in hepatitis B assessment and management. And they're a great resource. And for instance, through Royal Prince Alfred Hospital, we've both got a, a nurse practitioner and a hepatitis B nurse consultant who are both able to provide that advice over the phone or by email. That's amazing. I think it sounds like we're quite well supported. Um, there are places we can reach out for help, um, especially the crucial CNCs who are at these tertiary centres. Um, and I think there's also that form as well that ASHAM has launched, Reach B form, which is similar to the Reach C form if um, anyone's ever used it. Um, and so that gives us a little bit of an indication of where to take the next steps um, and you get a response quite quickly from that as well, I believe. That sounds perfect. Um, and, and so, Simone, uh, what are the treatments available to people who require Hep B treatments? So, so we do have very effective treatments. So we we don't treat everybody. We treat anybody who is at risk of complications, basically, because so, the reason for treating is to reduce the risk of complications. So we treat people with AOT elevations, with fibro scan scores suggesting they've got at least moderate fibrosis, or who are at high risk of developing liver cancer because of family history, who have ongoing high levels of HBV DNA as they, they're getting older. So for instance, a, a 35, 40 year old who's still got very high level of hepatitis B DNA is probably not going to resolve that infection themselves. So there's lots of different indications for treatment. The treatments we have at the moment are not ideal. They're long-term therapy and very few people, once we start therapy, can stop it. It's oral medication that's given just once a day. There's two medications, actually there's three medications approved by the TGA, but only two of them are listed on the PBS. And fortunately, in, a, in New South Wales, we have a New South Wales health-sponsored um, consent process that the 
the actual co-payment for these medications is waived. So it's of zero cost to the patient if they've got that S100 consent form with them that's provided through New South Wales Health. So the, the Commonwealth pays for the drug itself on the PBS. New South Wales Health currently pays the co-payment, so it's of zero cost. The two drugs we have access to are Intecavir and Tenofovir and TDF, which is that actual preparation. There's another form of, of Tenofovir which is approved and it may be slightly uh, favourable, but it's not PBS listed and it's quite expensive. So for all intents and purposes, we use Tenofovir um, Disaproxyl or TDF or Entecavir. They're both given once a day. They're very safe. They've got um, uh, long-term safety and efficacy um, in clinical trials and in common practice. And the, the downside is once you start patients on treatment, very few of them will be able to get off in the long term. We are looking at strategies for maybe removing some patients from long-term treatment, but most of them stay on it. We see problems where patients suddenly stop therapy, they move, they stop accessing their GP. We saw this through COVID where people just didn't get their scripts renewed and we've actually seen severe flares of hepatitis B in that situation. So there are risks of suddenly stopping without medical supervision for sure. But the therapies are, are pretty safe. We decide the benefits of one versus the other in an individual patient. In young women of childbearing age, for instance, tenofovir is better because um, it's got a favourable track record in pregnancy, which in Tecovir doesn't. We don't have much data. So if I was starting a, a young woman who might have a, a baby in the future, I would, I would select tenofovir. If I had somebody who had significant bone disease or renal impairment, I would select entecavir because it doesn't have signals of toxicity in those areas so there are different situations where you might choose one or the other but they're very very safe overall they're highly effective they reduce the risk of progression to cirrhosis they reduce the risk of liver cancer but they're long-term therapies now we are doing clinical trials of new therapies and there have been recent publications in this area of therapies that may drive down the hepatitis B surface antigen level to the point where the immune control systems in our bodies will actually clear the hepatitis B and people can come off therapy in the long term. So there's a lot of interest from pharmaceutical companies, particularly to develop strategies for finite treatments that we won't need lifelong therapies. And, and the major liver centres such as ours are doing clinical trials in this area. We're always happy to enrol patients if they're, if they're referred in uh, to participate in these clinical trials where they may just need short-term finite therapy to clear their hepatitis B more permanently. And that would be a great aim. Wow. So there's a lot of things on the horizon potentially. Potentially. None of them are... We're just looking at phase three protocols at the moment, the very first of the phase three protocols. So maybe we'll get some of these therapies to market in the coming years and that would be highly attractive. That's awesome. Um I was just also wondering, what if someone uh, came in on these therapies uh, and me as a GP, what should I be looking out for in terms of drug-drug interactions and how do I find information on these drug-drug interactions? So, in fact, tenofovir and entecavir have very, very few drug-drug interactions, but if you want to look them up, there is the, new, the University of Liverpool UK um, website uh, that and you just Google hepatitis drug interactions, you can put the drugs that they're on. This replies to hepatitis C particularly, applies to HIV drugs, hepatitis drugs, and now COVID drugs as well. Um, you can very easily put in the drug that they're on to treat that disorder and then the other drugs they're on and it will give you a green 
uh, yellow or red light about whether there's a significant drug interaction there or not. So that's a great resource to use. But these the drugs for hepatitis B have really very few drug interactions. Um, it should really not be a significant consideration. The main issue with them is that entecavir has to be given away from food to um, have maximal bioavailability and tenofovir doesn't matter. So that, that's a bit of a talking point with the patient about timing of taking their medications. But drug interactions is not a huge problem, but if there's any concern, you can always look it up. Okay, good to know. And um, so you talked about who needs treatment, um, but who needs monitoring for hepatitis B? Everybody with hepatitis B surface antigen needs monitoring. So that's at least annual review. The reason for that is that even if you think somebody's in immune control, and by that I mean their ALT is completely normal, their HBV DNA level, when you check it, is either not detected or less than 2,000, less than 2,000 international units per mil, then we would uh, just keep that person under surveillance because they don't need antiviral treatment at that time, particularly if they've had a fibro scan that's normal. But some of those, as they get older, will actually develop immune escape. They'll remain E-antigen negative, but they'll develop higher levels of HBV DNA and you might start seeing that their ALT starts bouncing up. And we know that a completely normal ALT in a slim, uh, healthy woman should be under 19 or 19 and below in a slim, healthy male, should be 30 or below. And if we start seeing those levels arising, for instance, in a woman, we're starting seeing levels of 35. In a man, we might be seeing levels of 45 or 50, whereas previously we saw them much lower and they haven't suddenly gained five or 10 kilos in weight, which would be the other explanation. But if they start fluctuating, the HBV DNA is going up, that means they're probably entering immune escape. They're at higher risk of liver fibrosis progression and liver cancer, and they're the people we also would put on to antiviral treatment. So you can't take your eye off any of them. Everybody who's hepatitis B surface antigen positive needs at least annual review with blood tests. And who can provide treatment uh, I think you said already some specialists um, and, and who else? Can GPs provide treatment? So the drugs are available under Section 100. So they either through the hospital specialists or, or other specialists or through the ASHAM trained Section 100 um, GP providers as well can prescribe. So anybody who's a GP can do the training to enable them to do S100 prescription of hepatitis B drugs. But if you just give somebody a script for hepatitis B drug and you're not an approved S100 prescriber, they will be charged for that drug. Um, you can prescribe it, of course, but not on the PBS. So that patient will have... Uh, the costs are coming down because they're now generics, but it's still a lot more than zero, which it would be if it was prescribed by an S100 prescriber. So I would suggest if people are interested in this area, if they've got a high caseload in their practice, and for many of the GPs who are from Chinese, Vietnamese, et cetera, backgrounds, they, a lot of their practice will also be from those backgrounds. Therefore, they've probably got quite a lot of hepatitis B in their practice, even though they don't know it because they're not testing. Um, they might want to do the, the um, ASHAM training course so that they actually get a lot more knowledge around hepatitis B and decide about becoming a prescriber under the Section 100 scheme. And so as GPs, when should we refer patients? Um, and how do I make the differentiation between referring patients to a colleague who is an S100 prescriber or to a specialist? If you think that person's got cirrhosis or advanced liver disease, then they probably should be seen by a specialist. 
But if you've got one of your colleagues as an S100 prescriber, they're very confident and experienced in managing hepatitis B, that's fine as well. So it really depends what works locally for you. You might have a really good relationship with the clinic. Some of us have community-based clinics run by our nurse consultants. So that's another avenue for referral. And it, it, it really depends on the, on the local situation, I think, and who your colleagues are, what your relationship with the local specialists is or the local CNCs. Um, and I think really what you need to do is make sure that that patient is under care, um, whichever way works for that patient. Awesome. Um, and, and what happens to patients who are referred? Because that's a little bit of a black box to us sometimes. Yeah, so I can only talk for myself, I guess. So if somebody refers a patient to me, you know, dear Dr. Strasser, thank you for seeing Mr. Whatever with, um, with hepatitis B, what I would like to see in that referral is that they've had all their blood tests to start with. And I must say I did see one this week where all I had was the surface antigen uh, result and I had no HBV DNA. I did have liver function tests, which was good. I would like to see all the tests that we've talked about in that referral. And then I'll see that patient. In part of my assessment, I would do a fibro scan routinely so I can further risk stratify that patient. I then decide whether they're of an age group where they're indicated for HCC surveillance, which I'll discuss with the patient. And I will assess them for whether they need to be under antiviral treatment or just monitoring. And then the frequency of the monitoring, depending on their their, where they're at in their phases. If it's a young person, and we do get quite a few referrals now of international students, and the international student numbers are going up, and so patients from Mongolia, from Myanmar, from Vietnam, from um, China, for instance, we're seeing are coming here, and the first time they might be tested is through student health, for instance, and then they get referred in as well. Uh, so, and then it depends on their age, whether they've got an indication for treatment, and then how we're going to access treatment if they're Medicare ineligible, and we will facilitate their access to treatment in that situation. But for every patient, it's really risk assessing. It's what's their risk of cancer? Do they need surveillance? What's their risk of progression? Do they need antiviral treatment? And what's their monitoring strategy going to be going forward? Do we send them back to their GPs for that monitoring? Do we keep them within our service and have review at a, at a regular interval? And we often use shared care models when we think about caring for patients, such as in antenatal care. Um, do you think this could be applied in some sort of an informal way in Hep B management? Yes, of course. Um, like to share care, everything. I do. If patients are under antiviral treatment and their GP is not an S100 prescriber, then I do have to see them regularly. Um, I might see them annually if they're younger. Once they get to an HCC surveillance age, which is generally 40 in a man from Asia, 50 in women from Asia, 50 in Indigenous and, and many other people, once they're under HCC surveillance, I tend to see them six monthly to make sure they're getting their HCC surveillance. Again, it depends on the GP and, and some GPs are very proactive in this area and all GPs should be able to make sure the patient's getting a six monthly ultrasound, but it doesn't always happen. And again, part of, of this education move is to make sure that patients who are, should be having liver cancer surveillance are getting it. And um, that can be through a shared care model where I'm, I see the patient annually, but the GP is ordering the, the ultrasounds and I just review the result once a year or... Um, 
it depends you know it depends on, on really the level of interest expertise of the GP and my role is to make sure the patient's not missing out on their regular surveillance so if I'm anxious about it I will tend to keep them under six monthly review once they're on HCC surveillance to make sure it happens but certainly going forward there should be much more opportunity for shared care to make and the GPs making sure that those patients are getting those tests done of course, I know very much that GPs are under so much pressure to look after every aspect of that person's health, and this is just one of them. And if I can help to make sure that they're having it happen, they're getting their surveillance, they're getting the regular blood tests, then that's obviously appropriate as well. So you're saying, Simone, that if someone is on treatment and if someone is not on treatment, um, the frequency with which they should be seen by either a GP or a specialist um, should be at least every six months. Somebody on treatment should be at least every six months, and we've we just monitored that they are taking their medications, their HPV DNA is suppressed, they haven't got any renal toxicity, etc. And once they're on cancer surveillance, they need to be seen every six months because they need an ultrasound every six months and probably an AFP level in that setting. So they're they're having blood tests anyway. Somebody not on treatment who's below the age for HCC surveillance, they probably just need annual review just to make sure that their disease hasn't actually changed at all and they haven't suddenly developed a higher level of HPV DNA or getting increased elevations of their ALT level. All right, that's fair, I think. So it's, yeah, 6 to 12 months depending on the situation. Yeah. Um, oh, awesome. Um, and so um, I guess as GPs, we're often quite time poor. You know, we're confined to a typical 15 or 30-minute appointment or less uh, where patients usually come in with a different agenda to our own and then us having to act quite opportunistically to encourage them to do testing or monitoring for their hep B. So do you have any tips on how we can keep people engaged in care and reduce the number of people dropping out? Well, I think you, you mentioned opportunistic testing. I think we're not doing that well, um, particularly in primary care. And again, if you're seeing somebody because they come in for their hypertension or because they've twisted their ankle or they've got a cut or any reason that they might turn up at their GP. And you know they were born in Vietnam, China, Africa, Pacific Islands, etc. Looking back at your record to make sure you've got that hepatitis B result there. And if you haven't got it, do it. That's not going to take very long. You've just got to be thinking about it. So opportunistic testing to identify who has hepatitis B is really important. Then once you've done that, then it's going to be a longer conversation with that patient about what that means for them. They're going to think a whole lot of things. So there's a lot of misconceptions in the general public that if they've got hepatitis B, it must mean they're dirty, it must mean they've slept around, must mean they've been injecting drugs, all of which are clearly untrue for the vast majority of people. Um, all that needs to be debunked. So it does need a longer consultation with the patient to discuss the, the impact of having hepatitis B to them. Uh, and then that whole assessment about whether they need treatment, whether they need cancer surveillance, et cetera, and also who else in their family should be tested for hepatitis B. So it's a longer conversation, I think, and, and has to have time made for it. But, again, making sure people who you know have hepatitis B are having that regular follow-up, they haven't dropped out of care, is also really, really important. So I think one way I've structured it in my head is maybe I'll engage that person, build rapport first in that first initial consultation, which might be a short one, and then invite them back for a longer consultation to discuss all those things you talked about. 
to try and keep them engaged. I think that's a really, really good strategy. And you've probably got a lot more experience than I have in this area. I only see them once they've been referred to me. You're the one that's diagnosing them out there in primary care and, and having to have those conversations, which at times I know are challenging. Yeah, absolutely. Um, what about our marginalised populations, you know, people from culturally and linguistically diverse backgrounds who form such a large cohort of our Hep B patients? And what about Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders? Do you think specifically targeting these uh, groups, um, how can we improve follow-up in these patients and what are some resources we can use? Yeah, I think that's, that's really important. The, the current community well, in fact, both communities are very interesting. There's a lot of stigma around having viral hepatitis, um, whether it's hepatitis C or hepatitis B, in many communities. In many countries in Asia, for instance, once somebody's got hepatitis B, they might be treated differently for insurance by their employer, uh, job opportunities, etc. So they've come from countries where there's a lot of stigma around hepatitis B. And again, that's going to take some time to talk through to, to destigmatize the whole thing and just normalize it with just another infection, just needs treatment, man- management, monitoring, etc. It's the same in the Indigenous communities. There's a lot of stigma around it. So we do need to engage people in a sensitive way. There are materials through our multicultural um, hepatitis services, a lot of resources online and available as print and through New South Wales Health as well to provide information to to those communities in appropriate language. And again, we'll put those in the show notes as well. That's great. Um, And do you have any tips how we can manage patients who might have other comorbidities, you know, such as alcohol use, obesity? It's really interesting. So I, I did allude to this earlier when we talked about AOT elevations. So not all AOT elevations in someone with hepatitis B is due to their hepatitis B. In fact, the commonest reason for AOT elevation in the community is obesity or overweight and diabetes, so the metabolic risk factors, and also alcohol consumption. So hepatitis B infected people are not immune to these things. So we can often see people who have weight gain or already overweight or in the obesity range or are significantly drinking and have hepatitis B. And the more comorbidities that affect the liver you have, the higher the risk of developing fibrosis, progression and liver cancer. So we actually need to pull them apart. We need to look at everybody, not just say everything's due to hepatitis B, say actually you've got significant weight. And remembering in an Asian person, a normal BMI is 22, not 25. And Asian people tend to carry their weight viscerally, meaning intra-abdominally and in their liver, rather than in their hips and thighs and buttocks where a lot of other people might carry it. So they're at higher risk at a lower BMI, which is what that means. So we need to engage on good diets, uh, as we do in anybody, um, exercise, weight reduction, reducing alcohol intake if it's in the harmful range and that that applies to everybody we're seeing but it particularly also applies to to people living with hepatitis b or hepatitis c um and specifically another group is the antenatal group um you mentioned it earlier in the podcast but if someone is picked up in pregnancy through antenatal screening and is positive for hep b infection What does this mean for the individual and their family or community? Well, let's start with that individual. Again, if that's the first time they've been diagnosed with hepatitis B, they're going to have a whole lot of anxiety 
around what people think about them, what it's going to, how it's going to impact their pregnancy, how it's going to impact their baby. So that's a whole lot of discussion as well. Um, we need to re-stratify that person. They must have an HBV DNA. And if they're, if, and usually young people, they don't have significant liver disease at that stage and it's not really a major concern. Occasionally we'll see some minor flares in pregnancy, but it, in general it doesn't impact the pregnancy or the woman's health at that point. What it does actually impact is the risk of transmission to the child. So if the woman is E-antigen positive, they're very likely to have a high level of HBV DNA, which of course we will quantitate as well. And a level over 200,000 international units per mil is an indication for antiviral treatment from around 28 weeks of pregnancy. And that's now recommended by the World Health Organization globally, as well as by the Australian and the New South Wales hepatitis B strategies. So standard of care, if a woman is hepatitis B positive in pregnancy, whether that we knew about it before the pregnancy or we found it in antenatal testing, we need to do an HBV DNA if they're not already on treatment. I usually do that around week 20. And if it's high above that threshold of 200,000 or around that level, then that would be an indication for antiviral treatment from around 28 weeks of pregnancy with tenofovir. And there's, that's actually S100 funded now. It's a fairly new innovation in the last year or so that, that's on the PBS under S100 for, in fact, 24 weeks of treatment. So I usually go from 28 weeks of pregnancy, another 12, and then 12 weeks postpartum, and then they stop if they don't have an indication to continue. And that reduces the risk of mother-to-baby transmission in high viral load mothers from around 8.5 to 10% to down to zero. And that's in the situation where the babies are getting their vaccinations at birth. They'll get hepatitis B immunoglobulin and hepatitis B vaccination, certainly within 12 hours of birth and preferably within four hours of birth to reduce their risk of transmission. But the residual risk is still 8.5 to 10% in high viral load mums. So they're the ones that need antiviral intervention. And then they get monitored afterwards. There is a recommendation that babies born to Hep B infected mothers have a test for hepatitis B surface antigen and surface antibody at least three months after they've finished their vaccinations. So that's from nine months of age generally. So the babies get their hepatitis B immunoglobulin, their vaccination, and then their routine hepatitis B vaccinations at two, four, and six months. And then that, that woman needs to be obviously monitored to see whether she needs ongoing antiviral treatment. And as I mentioned earlier, her family members, if she's from a, a family where people were born overseas, they all need to be tested for hepatitis B and assessed in their own rights. So, Karen, I guess a question for you is, in your S100 prescribing GP, are your patients comfortable with you prescribing and looking after their hepatitis B? Do some of them want specialist consultation or are there certain patients that you think should be seen by a specialist? Yeah, I think it's all of the above, really. Um, there's some patients who like having their GP being the same person and having that rapport already and then continuing their care. Um, so I think that makes it easy in that sense. Um, but also, you know, being a GP as 100 prescriber, I feel quite well supported. I know I can reach out to yourself or one of my mentors. Um, so as an S100 prescriber, get assigned a, a gastroenterologist who has a special interest in this area. And then I have the direct contact. There's also a community of practice um, that we're a part of. And there's also that um, ASHAM uh, Reach C or Reach B form now um, that we can use. So 
in that sense, you know, I feel quite confident um, that I am supported to manage the patient if appropriate to do so. And I can always refer to specialists for help if needed. Um, so I get a mix of all three. Um, so to answer your question, some patients would like to engage with the gastroenterologist or hepatologist from the start. And that's their choice. That's fine. I'll refer them onwards because that's what they're most comfortable with. And that would help engage them in care and keep them engaged. Um, then we have the group where, as I talked about, you know, they they like being able to see their GP because it's easier to book in and you can get other issues sorted at the same time. Um, and in that setting, um, that goes really well. And, you know, if we need help, we can always ask for extra help. Um, and so we get we get all three of these. Yeah. So presumably you're doing HCC surveillance in your practice in these people. Have you ever found a liver cancer or have any of your patients had liver cancer? Yes, yeah. So I have had some patients who have come from overseas, uh, from China. They're visiting their children who may have settled in Australia um, and they've just had some liver cancer treatment um, and come into the practice. I haven't formally diagnosed anyone uh, with liver cancer yet, so that's good, <laughs> I suppose. Uh, but yes, we do engage them regularly in HCC monitoring. Sometimes that monitoring could be split up. For example, you know, they may spend six months in Vietnam, six months in China. And so I would say to them, you still need to get this done wherever you are. Um, and, and they are attuned with that. Um, so I will send practice reminders on when the six-month monitoring is due. And we have access to that through best practice or medical director, whichever software we're using, to set reminders and send them SMSs and emails for follow-up. Um, and if they have not done so, you know, they'll get a reminder. Um, and if we've made an agreement that, you know, in six months' time they're going to be in Vietnam, then they will be aware they need to do that screening there and bring the results back to Australia when they come back. I think that's really important, Karen, that the GPs are using as much of their their supports, their systems to really to automate a lot of this stuff as well so that patients don't drop out of care. And I think that's really important what you mentioned about sending automatic reminders and, and having it scheduled in their record. Not all practices are that electronically advanced, I guess, but um, moving forward, it's 2023. I would really encourage as many practices as possible to, to get those facilities so that they can actually do that and, and take a lot of the, the stress of, of having to remember to do things and, and automate them. Absolutely. That's right. Um, but what I do find challenging, I think, as a GP is um, sort of engaging these people in care, as you say, uh, because we've got short appointments and they might come in for something else. And then there's also the other factor to think about arranging an interpreter for people without Medicare. So there's an additional cost to them. So in that setting, it may be easier for them to see, for example, the CNC at a local tertiary hospital where that care can be provided for free. But there are populations who are not as suited to our setting, but a lot of patients can be seen in our setting. Um, and, and then there's also the issue of other marginalised populations. Um, we don't readily have access to outreach services and access to, say, for example, an Aboriginal health worker in our uh, general practice, um, but these people can access those through our local health district generally. Again, so there should be a, a really a home, I guess, for every patient where they're feeling comfortable, supported, they're getting the appropriate health care. It has to be individualised to that individual patient. Absolutely.
Perfect. Um, so, uh, Simone, um, I guess to summarise, what kind of useful resources do you currently use in your practice and what would you like to refer us GPs to? So we will put those in the show notes. The ASHAM resources, there's resources through the Gastro Society of Australia, as I mentioned, including the, the Hepatitis B consensus. If people want a deeper dive into recent concepts around screening, uh, surveillance for liver cancer, treatment, indications for treatment, indications for stopping treatment, how patients should be monitored and all those aspects are all within the, the Hepatitis B consensus as well. What I didn't mention, I'm a director of a relatively new organisation called the Liver Foundation, and we have a lot of information on our website as well, and we can put that in the, in the notes. That's liver.org.au, and that's got a lot of information around um, viral hepatitis, but also around all other causes of liver disease, such as fatty liver disease is a big module. There's also within that... Um, the opportunity to do CPD and there's modules for particularly around fatty liver disease as well there that GPs always looking for ways of doing their CPD so that's a, another opportunity there so have a look at that uh, through multicultural health services which we mentioned there's a lot of materials there um, and uh, New South Wales Health itself has got lots of resources as well. So there's lots of opportunities and access to resources to support our care of these patients and for the patients to, to go to themselves as well. Yeah, that's a really great summary. Uh, and I also like to say that health pathways, your local health pathways for your region um, is something you could access. And um, for, for our regions, we have been updating the hepatitis B pathway um, to align well with these resources that have been mentioned by Simone. I should have absolutely mentioned health pathways. Uh, in fact, the hepatitis B module was the very first health pathway that was developed in, in our local PHN and local health district. Uh, and it's incredibly valuable. And I really, I mean, all GPs should be using health, health pathways. Again, it's got all the contacts within the local health districts of how you get patients into the, the hospital-based services as well. So I should have mentioned that. Thank you, Karen. Thanks, Simone, for being so involved in um, helping us develop these resources. Um, and then uh, there's also templates that we can use as GPs. Um, so your local health district may have some templates. Your PHM website may have some templates to import into best practice and medical director for hepatitis B. And um, we also have access to GP management plans, TCAs to facilitate these EPC referrals as well. Um, so from a remuneration perspective, Medicare does support us with managing these patients. There's also uh, cultural responsive care training courses um, provided by RACGP and ASHAM so that we're able to be equipped to manage with these um, marginalised populations. Is there anything else you'd like to add today, Simone? I guess the very last area where we haven't spent much time on, but I do want to mention, but not in a great detail, is the patient undergoing significant immunosuppression or cancer therapy, because they're a special group. And anybody in that situation who has hepatitis B surface antigen should be under antiviral treatment to prevent reactivation of the hepatitis B and severe life-threatening flares or life-shortening flares. They can be fatal. So... 
that's a strong recommendation. Again, we've got Australian guidelines around that, that anybody who's surface antigen therapy undergoing significant immunosuppression or chemotherapy, or now a whole raft of other drugs like treatments for IBD, for rheumatology disorders, for dermatology disorders. In that setting, anybody who's surface antigen positive should be under antiviral cover to prevent reactivation or activation. And the other group is the core antibody positive patient who's surface antigen negative, who's receiving significant B cell depleting therapies or undergoing stem cell transplant should all be under antiviral therapy as well. So there are other settings where we really, I'm very scared of hepatitis B in those settings. They can develop acute liver failure incredibly quickly, silently, and then very quickly when it's not so silent as in their encephalopathic and coagulopathic and, and dying of acute liver failure. So again, it's a, the GP's the one who knows about their overall conditions. If they're getting high doses of steroids for a prolonged period of time or any other immunosuppression and their hepatitis B surface antigen positive, that will be an indication for being under antiviral treatment. So that's just the other area that we really didn't delve into, but is really, really important. Yeah, thanks for raising that important point. Um, that's really quite a good pearl of wisdom to consider immunosuppressed populations. Well, thank you so much for your time today, Simone. That's been really eye-opening and I've learned so much from our conversation and I'm sure a lot of GPs in our audience has too. So thanks very much for being with us today. Absolute pleasure. It's really important, I think, that GPs all really engage this, know who their patients are who have hepatitis B and make sure they're under care because by that doing that, we can prevent the downstream complications and the significant morbidity and mortality associated with hepatitis B.